please take out your Bibles, open them up with me to the, God, the book of Acts, book of Acts, chapter 4. If you don't have a Bible, please grab one from under a seat close by in front of you. If you don't own a Bible, take that one home with you after the service. We can continue this morning our study in the book of Acts. We, the, the beginning of the church, the birth of the church, pouring out of the Holy Spirit upon the believers there in Jerusalem. And over the last couple of weeks, we've looked at a specific event that has taken place now. Peter and John heading up to the temple to pray. They come across a man who has been lame since birth. He's over 40 years old. He's never taken a step. He's been crippled since he was born. And he, the, day after day, they bring him to place him outside of the gate called Beautiful, the gate that many, most people walk through to get up to the temple area. And he would beg alms. He was begging for gifts, anything that people might give to him. And he thought that today, this day, would be like every other day. But this day would be like no other day in his life. Because as Peter passes by, he stops and he says, I don't have silver or gold. I have nothing of that to give you. But what I do have, I do give you in the name of Jesus. Get up and walk. And the man stands up and not only walks, he jumps for joy. He follows Peter and John into the temple area, the, uh, the courts that are there. And we see that a large multitude of people now have gathered around to see this spectacle, to see this amazing thing that has taken place, because all of these people had walked by this man day after day after day. They knew him. They had experienced and encountered him. And now they see him not only walking, but standing, praising, jumping, praising God. Word spreads around the whole area, and thousands come. Peter takes advantage of that and shares the truth that this man is healed in the, in the name of the living, risen Lord Jesus Christ. And we pick up our story now in chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. It says, as they were speaking to the people, that is, that is Peter and the apostles, they're speaking to the people now that are gathered around. Notice it says, the priests and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came up to them, being greatly disturbed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they laid hands on them and put them in jail until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the message believed, and the number of men came to be about 5,000. Again, the miracle that takes place, the message that Peter shares, and first I want to take note of the astonishing reaction of the chief priests, the temple guard, the Sadducees. Notice it says they are greatly disturbed. A man who hasn't walked in 40 years, born lame, never taken a step, is now walking, leaping, and praising God, and they're disturbed over this. And not, not because of the action that has taken place, but because now of what Peter and John are saying, and Peter specifically proclaiming that it is in the power of Jesus, and speaking of the risen Jesus. Notice that the proclaiming Jesus in Jesus, the resurrection from the dead. This particularly upset the Sadducees because the Sadducees was that religious sect that didn't, didn't hold to most of the scripture at that time. They discounted miracles and angels and resurrection. They thought as soon as you were dead, life is done, everything is over at that point when you die, and that is why they are sad, you see. And that <laughs> is your way that you can remember that. It says that they are so disturbed by this that they lay their hands on them, and that's not to bless them, that is to arrest them, and it throws the, they throw them into prison. Now, we read this, and we read this story, and it is pretty astonishing, isn't it? I mean, it's kind of amazing when we think of it, to, that if we read this start to finish, that their reaction is so amazing. But should it amaze us? Should it have amazed them? Because they had witnessed, and we have, as we've studied the scriptures, that similar type of response to Jesus, Right? I mean, we saw it over and over again. We saw it when the demon-possessed man who had the demon legion in him. So many demons, they referred to themselves as legion. 
terrorizing the coast of Galilee that, that, that he lived on. He lived in the tombs, terrorizing the neighborhoods, terrorizing the villages. Everybody, they didn't know what to do with this man. They tried to bind him with chains. That didn't work. They tried everything, and it didn't work. Jesus comes, heals the man, casts out the demons, and what's the reaction of the people? Jesus, get out of here. Leave. Leave our region. We see it in the story of Zacchaeus. You know, the wee little man <laughs> climbed up in a sycamore tree. Well, Zacchaeus wasn't a popular guy in town. As a matter of fact, he might have been public enemy number one. He was the chief tax collector, which means he ripped everybody off, and he confesses it at the end of our story. Everybody, nobody liked Zacchaeus. Everybody, nobody could stand him, and everybody's getting ripped off by this guy. Jesus comes and changes him so radically that he says, not only am I going to give back what I've taken from everybody, I'm going to give back more. And what's the people's reaction? Jesus eating with a sinner. Ultimately, we see after all that Jesus did in his ministry, the people hand him over to be crucified. So should it astonish us? Should it amaze us? The Bible tells us that all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. Jesus, even telling his disciples, Peter and John being there, John records it for us in John 15. He says, remember the words that I said to you. A slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they might persecute you also. All right, you following along with me? It's up on the screen. They will also persecute you. Not might. Because they did it to me, Jesus said, they will persecute you as well. But notice, this is a twofold promise that Jesus says, if they kept my word, they will keep yours also. Jesus said, he who believes in me, the works that I do, he will also do. If you are a believer in Jesus, the power is in you to do the same things and have the same, the same authority that he had through, through the word. The amazing response, not only of the religious leaders, but look at verse 4. Many of those who heard the message believed. And the number came to be about 5,000. Now some, when they look at that, say, it says it says there came to be about 5,000, that 2,000 were added to the 3,000. But in the original Greek, the way the sentence flows there, 5,000 new believers came to know the Lord Jesus that day. They heard, notice. There was many that day that heard with their ears, including the Sadducees, including all of these religious leaders that have them arrested. Many heard with their ears. But upwards of 5,000 here not only heard with their ears, it went past their ears, penetrated past their brains, into their hearts. They came under the conviction of the Holy Spirit. They repented of their sin and received Jesus as their Lord and Savior. Notice it was based on the message. They heard the message, not based on the miracle. It wasn't because of what they saw. It's because of what they heard. Granted, what they saw certainly piqued their interest, but it was hearing the word of God. God, speaking through the prophet Isaiah, says this in Isaiah 55, For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there without watering the earth and making it bare and sprout and furnishing seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so will my word be which goes forth from my mouth. It will not return to me empty without accomplishing what I desire and without succeeding in the matter for which I sent it. Guys, there is power in the Word of God. The Word of God is living, it is active, and there is power in the Word of God. The Bible says that faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word of Christ. Paul writes in Romans chapter 10, For whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him whom they have not believed? How will they believe in him whom they have not heard? And how will they hear without a preacher? How will they preach unless they are sent? Just as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news of good things. 
One might, in reading through that, understand that, 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 and agree with all of it that goes along with saying, well, that makes perfect sense. How are they going to, how are they going to believe unless they hear? And how are they going to hear unless they're told? But they point out and they look at it, well, unless there's a preacher. And they say, hey, Pastor Brett, that's your job. You're the preacher. That's not what that says. Guess who's the preacher in this? Because <laughs> that word preacher there is not speaking of a title. It's speaking of an action. It's speaking of proclaiming a truth. Paul writing to Timothy, specifically telling Timothy, but through that, Timothy passing that on to his congregation, if you would, and because it's recorded for us in Scripture, passing that on to us, says in 2 Timothy, preach the word. Proclaim the word. Simply state the truth of God's word. And he goes on to say, in season and out of season. That means when it's popular and when it's not. Do we need to vote? <laughs> popular or unpopular today? <laughs> Pretty unpopular, but that's not an excuse. That doesn't mean we back off. That doesn't mean that we don't proclaim the truth or the word. In season and out of season. And then we let the word do, the power of the word, the Holy Spirit using the word to do what only God can do through his living and active word, and that is to exhort, that is, that is to encourage, that is to challenge, that is to rebuke and to reprove. Again, the authority is in the word of God, not the individual, it's in the word. God, again, reminding you, he said it, his word will not return void. It will accomplish everything for which he sent it out. So we simply need to be that vehicle that God uses to send it out. And then the rest is up to him. Some will reject it. Some will persecute because of it. But some will receive it. And our job is to be the messengers. Our job is to be the proclaimers. Well, our friends... Spend the night in prison, in verse 5 it says, On the next day their rulers and elders and scribes were gathered together in Jerusalem. And Annas, the high priest, was there, and Caiaphas, and John, and Alexander, and all who were of high priestly descent. When they had placed them in the center, they began to inquire, By what power or in what name have you done this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit said to them, rulers and elders of the people, if we are on trial today for a benefit done to a sick man as to how this man has been made well, let it be known to all of you and to all people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by this name, this man stands here before you in good health. Verse 11, he, Jesus, is the stone which was rejected by you, the builders, but which became the chief cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. Here we see quite a, quite a scene. We see Peter, John, and the man who had been healed. Now, we don't know if he spent the night in prison either. It doesn't tell us. He either did with them because he's associated with them, or they bring him back in the next day. But they're standing, and it says, in the center. And they would have this, this group that is around them in a very intimidating fashion, intentionally intimidating. All of these religious leaders, and they name a few of them, Annas, who was the high priest at the time, recognized by the Jews as their high priest, an extremely immoral and crooked um, leader, for sure, ripping, ripping everybody off, became extremely wealthy because of all of this, but still recognized by the Jews as the high priest. Caiaphas, related, but he was the Roman appointee, not the Jewish recognized by the Jews, but recognized by Rome. And all of those of high priestly descent. Estimates are upwards of 70 people are in this council that are around them. High priestly descent, all of these that are the religious hierarchy, if you would. 
and in a show of intimidation surrounding them, it says they're in the middle, they're up and around them, these 70 scholars versus two fishermen. Doesn't seem like a fair fight, does it? Two fishermen filled by the Holy Spirit. You're right, it isn't a fair fight. <laughs> Those 70 don't stand a chance. Let me let you in on a little math equation. Don't ever forget this, born-again believer. God plus me equals victory. God plus me is a majority. No matter what you face, no matter what you come up against, God in you, Christ in you, the hope of glory, God plus you, they don't stand a chance. And they're standing there in this place, and again, in this intimidating place, they ask them, by what name and what power have you done this? It's not that they don't know what they said. They were there. Many of them heard it. They're giving Peter a chance to back down. They're giving Peter a chance to recant what he said. And we see Peter's anointed reply. Notice he doesn't recant. He doesn't back down. He doesn't, he doesn't come back swinging and fighting and trying to jab back either. That, that, that's a natural flesh reaction when people come against us, right? Is to fight back in the, in the flesh. Peter will later write in 1 Peter chapter 2, speaking of Jesus, while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. Peter taking these very, this example that he saw in Jesus, taking it in very personally, he would, like I said, would later write these words for us, for you and me. While being reviled, didn't revile in return. Didn't fight, didn't utter threats. He didn't say, man, I got power to call down fire from heaven on you guys. He did none of that. He kept entrusting himself to the one who judges righteously. Entrusting himself. Complete faith. You know, I, I, I think of this, and it, it's not recorded for, it doesn't tell us this here, but I have a very good feeling that Peter was well-rested at this point. I think he slept very well in prison the night before. I don't think he and John were up all night planning their response, making sure that their testimonies lined up. Why? Because they're a living testimony. They had determined long before, we're not changing anything. We're not, we're not changing from this story. Peter himself said, where else are we going to go, Lord? You have the words of eternal life. His, his reply, a divine one, notice it says, filled with the Holy Spirit. And again, the tense that's used there in the original language means a fresh filling of the Holy Spirit. Standing there and trusting himself to the Father, right now the Holy Spirit poured out upon him again, and as Jesus said in Luke chapter 12, when they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities, do not worry about how or what you are to speak in your defense or what you are to say, for the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. Peter, with a fresh filling of the Holy Spirit, speaks boldly. Now, this is the same Peter, the same Peter who just a few weeks earlier denied that he even knew Jesus three times. What's different? Jesus died, rose again. The, the penalty paid in full. Peter embracing that truth in full, filled with the Holy Spirit. Peter's born again. He's a new creation. The old things have passed away. He boldly states, and I love the way he says it, let it be known to you and all the people of Israel, boldly taking his stand, that it's the name of Jesus that did this. It's the power of Jesus, the one, by the way, whom you crucified, God raised him from the dead, that Jesus. It's in his name. And he doesn't just stop there. He raises the bar higher by stating what he says next. The stone that the builders rejected became the chief cornerstone. Everyone in that room, everyone, knew exactly what Peter meant by that statement. 
He was quoting Psalm 118, and all of them, as the religious scholars, as the religious leaders, knew that Psalm 118, and that statement specifically, was referring to the coming Messiah. So Peter's pulling out the stops. You killed the Messiah. You crucified the anointed one that was sent to us. The one that we all talk about, that we've been waiting for. He came. You killed him. But God raised him again. And then he goes, raises it to the ultimate level. He says, salvation is found in no other name. There is no other name in heaven. No other name. Salvation in no one else. And that combination, the Jesus the Messiah, the cornerstone, the, the salvation in no other name, continues to be a problem. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians, a problem to the Jews and to the Gentiles alike. We preach Christ crucified to the Jews a stumbling block and to the Gentiles foolishness. But to those who are the called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Boldly standing on the truth. Salvation in no other name. There's not salvation in the name of Buddha. There's not salvation in the name of Muhammad. There's not salvation in the name of Gandhi or in Joseph Smith. There's salvation in no other name but the name of Jesus. And guys, this is so important for us as believers today. This is so important because the world around us, the world around us says you can't be that narrow. All roads lead to heaven. There's many, play, there's many ways to get right with God. And as long as you just believe, as long as you just have faith, as long as your faith is genuine, that's what matters. Guys, that's not true. There's salvation in no other name. And the world says that that's narrow. And I'll tell you the truth. It is narrow. Jesus said it's narrow. Jesus said, he said, wide is the path that leads to destruction. Narrow is the way that leads to life eternal. Narrow is the way. Guys, we have to be narrow-minded. Don't apologize for that. We have to be narrow-minded. Because if we're not narrow-minded, we'll water down the truth. And if we water down the truth, they stay on the wide road to destruction. It's, it baffles me. It baffles me that people get so hung up on the fact that they say, well, you will say there's only one way. Yes, there, but they, they miss the fact that there is a way. There is a way. They, would they have the same reaction if somebody came up with an ultimate cure for cancer? That if you take this pill, your cancer will be completely forever eradicated. Would their response be, well, that's pretty narrow. <laughs> I mean, I think that there's lots of roads to eradicate cancer. My road is that I eat all the chocolate that I want. That's my truth. That's my reality. Would that be their response? I doubt it. But let me tell you, there's something far more deadly than cancer. And that's death. Because 100 out of 100 people die of death. Nobody escapes that. Everyone who has flesh and blood, who is a living being... If we're not raptured as believers, we'll die. Yeah. Author of Hebrews says, Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, that's us, he himself, God himself, likewise also partook of the same. Jesus, taking on flesh and blood. God himself, becoming one of us, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. He did all of that. Paid the price in full, became one of us, defeated death. There is a cure for it. But there's only one cure for it. Peter boldly stating this. And notice the reaction now, verse 13. Now, as they observed the confidence of Peter and John, understood that they were uneducated and untrained men, they were amazed and began to realize that they had been with Jesus. I like this word that's, that's here. It says confidence. Because it means cheerful courage. 
Peter is standing in front of this group. Again, a group of religious leaders. This group that was, that was behind Jesus' crucifixion. And he boldly states this truth to them. But he boldly states it cheerfully. Why? Because he's full of hope. Because he's full of joy, because he's full of cheer, because his sins have been washed away, because he was a dead man walking, and now he's a new creation, because that, it, that joy just pouring out of him. Guys, when he wasn't standing there shaking his fist at them. And when we're sharing the truth, we have to be the same way. I mean, if we're bringing the truth and, and we got this whatever look on our face, you know, like, yeah, I want some of that. <laughs> I mean, I've talked, I've mentioned this before, that we, we have to be careful that we don't become like cactuses, you know, full of a lot of really good points, but really hard to hug. We have to be, we have to be full of joy, full of cheer as we share the truth. But we need to share it not only cheerfully, but boldly, confidently, unreservedly, without ambiguity, not watering it down. <laughs> Paul, or Peter here, just lays it straight out. And when they hear it, notice they observe his confidence, but then they recognize, they said that he's untrained, unlearned, uneducated in their eyes. Not in God's eyes, certainly. Paul writes, 1 Corinthians, you know, th consider your own calling, all of you. Not many wise, not many mighty, not many noble. But God chooses the foolish things according to the world to shame the wise according to the world. And it says, notice, and I love this, they recognized that they had been with Jesus. They recognized they had been with Jesus. Guys, that's the key to the whole thing. But I want to point out that there is something that they failed to recognize. Notice, what's the problem with the statement? Recognize that they had been with Jesus. The problem is they said it's past tense. They're, they hadn't been with Jesus. They're still with Jesus. Jesus is still a part of that. Paul, Paul tells us in Colossians, this mystery, Christ in us, the hope of glory. When we're, as born-again believers, we don't, we don't just have an access to Jesus. Christ is in us. He said, I will never leave you and never forsake you. But I think there's an important thing, truth in here that we have to be careful we don't miss. Yes, Jesus is with us. Yes, all of the power and everything is available to us. But guys, if we don't tap into it, it's amazing to me all that my smartphone can do. And I have it with me all the time. But 99% of the time throughout the day, the only thing I ever think about using it for is calling somebody or texting somebody. That's it. So what good is all the rest of it that's there? And yes, Christ is in you, but if you're not spending time with him, if you're not engaging that truth, if you're not embracing the fact that the almighty God is in you and, and desires to have this relationship with you and cultivate that time with you, what are we missing? How much are we missing out on? I challenge you as I challenge myself, how much time are we truly spending with Jesus? Is it enough to make a difference? Is it enough so other people recognize it? Certainly was with Peter and John. In verse 14, and seeing the man who had been healed standing with them, they had nothing to say in reply. Here's the man that they'd walked by themselves. How many times? How many days? How many times no, specifically seeking him out because they wanted to drop a coin in his, in his cup and do it loudly so everyone would hear and notice that they had given? <laughs> what are they going to do? They had nothing to say in reply. But when they had ordered them to leave the council, so <laughs> that's not the reaction they thought they'd get from Peter. They get this from Peter. They see the man standing there. They order them to leave the room so they can talk. They began to confer with one another, saying, 
What shall we do with these men? For the fact that a noteworthy miracle has taken place through them is apparent to all who live in Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. The miracle is here. It's right in front of us. We can't deny it. But, so that it will not spread any further among the people, let us warn them to speak no longer to any man in this name. We'll just tell them to stop talking about Jesus. We see here, again, the focus kind of coming away from Peter and John for a moment and focusing on the man who was there. It says the man that had been healed, the man who had never walked before, the man who was born lame, standing there with Jesus, but not just, or standing there with Peter and John, not just standing physically, but taking a stand with them. And again, I remind you, this man, 40 plus years old, born in a condition that was incurable, cured by Jesus. 40 years old, never walked, totally paralyzed for 40 years. Can anybody relate to that? Let me restate what I just said. Born in a condition that there is no cure for until he met Jesus. How many can relate to that? <laughs> all of us have our hand up now, right? Because we're all born sinners. And there's no hope apart from Jesus. But now, as born-again believers, now those that have been healed because of his finished work on the cross, do we take a stand with Jesus? And let me, let, me, let me ask it this way. The, the man, it was easy to take a stand with Peter and John in the temple when there were thousands of people around cheering and all excited because he's walking. It's totally different now, standing in front of these 70 elders. And it's just the three of them. So, born-again believer, do you take a stand for Jesus when you're not here? It's easy to do it here when you're in a room full of people that, that love Jesus just like you do. But do you take a stand for Jesus in your workplace when no one else is maybe a believer? Do you take a stand on the golf course when the rest of your foursome is not believers? Do you take a stand in your neighborhood or do you take a stand at family reunions even when it's not popular? Guys, there's something amazing in this little thing too that, that talks about that. When we take a stand for Jesus and people see it, if there is a miracle that has taken place in our life and it's demonstrated to them, there's nothing they can say. They can argue with you all day if they want about whether they believe in God or not, but they cannot deny the change in your life. And so I would ask you, is the change in your life visible to those around? Those who knew you before and those who know you now? Is the change visible? Because it's a miracle. None of us can do that on our own power. Is the miracle evident in your life? I, I love that. They, they, they can't argue with that. And these guys couldn't argue with it. They says they had nothing to say in reply. A noteworthy miracle is apparent. Can't argue with the change that's taken place. So they said, well, here's what we'll do. We'll just tell them not to do it anymore. In verse 18, and when they had summoned them, they commanded them not to speak or to teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered and said to them, whether it is right in the sight of God to give heed to you rather than to God, you be the judge. For we cannot stop speaking about what we have seen and heard. When they had threatened them further, they let them go, finding no basis on which to punish them on account of the people, because they were all glorifying God for what had happened. For the man was more than 40 years old on whom this miracle of healing had been performed. Here we see that they're faced with a choice. The world's demands are God's commands. They're, they've been demanded to stop, but Jesus commanded them to continue. And it's easy to see in their response, this isn't something they had to consider. It's not something that they had to weigh the options with. It's not something that they had to mull over. They had decided already before this moment came, there's no, we're, we're not turning back. There's no other way to go in this. They stand firmly again and boldly. 
But it does seem to raise a dilemma because I've had many conversations with people about similar things. What do we do in these situations? Because the Bible is clear. Peter himself even writes, submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human institution. That means government. Submit yourselves to what the government tells you to do. That's what Peter said. He said, in so doing, it's the will of God that you would glorify God in that and silence foolish people. So, but, so what do we do? How do we, how do we balance that? It's a, if, if the government is, is telling us one thing, God's word says something different. Guys, there's no gray area in this. And this is not complicated at all. The Bible tells us, submit to God. The Bible tells us that we are to be sanctified. That's God's will for us. Sanctified means set apart. We are to be different. Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. He said, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And Jesus doesn't flip-flop on his opinions. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. So here it is. Simply, we are to obey every governmental human institution that is placed over us unless it directly violates the word of God. That, it's that simple. That is what we are to do. But in this time that we're in right now, it's, it's a hostile time that we live in. It is, I mean, this time, and I know it happens, it kind of gets this way every election cycle, but I don't know about you, but it sure seems like it's a little more amped up this time around. And again, I've said this several times, but I need to repeat it again. Guys, no human can fix this. No elected official can fix this. Understand this. It's not the institution that's the problem. It's the culture that elected and put in place the institution. That's the problem. It's the underlying issue. It's the culture that we live in. It's not the, it's not the elected officials. It's those who elect them. So if we're going to change things, if we're going to be involved, we do what on, the only thing that we can do. Yes, and i got to put this little caveat in every time because I don't want the emails. Yes, we vote. And yes, we vote for those that are pro-choice, pro-marriage as God defines it, and pro-Israel. But, guys, understand that no matter who is elected, they're not going to fix it. It's up to us one by one, individually, getting involved in our community, getting involved in helping God and being his instruments to shape the culture that's around us. Guys, we have to be careful that we don't do more damage than good. Because as Christians, we should not be known for what we are against. We should be known for who we are for. And so often we can be identified as, as this, this group of people that's just against this and against this and against this. And yes, we're against abortion. And yes, we're against, against gay marriage and transgender bathrooms and, and all this stuff. Yes, but we're for Jesus. And that's what matters. And that's what has to come across. It can't come across as this, again, hard, angry, but with the truth cheerful assurance and courage. When that happens, miracles take place. And guess who's glorified? Not Peter, not you and me, but God is glorified. They're glorifying God. They said we can't stop. They let him go anyway. Verse 23, when they had been released... They went to their own companions and reported all that the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard this, they lifted their voices to God with one accord and said, O oh Lord, it is you who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and all that is in them, who by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said, Why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples devise futile things? 
The kings of the earth took their stand, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. For truly in this city there are gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. And now, Lord, take note of their threats and grant that your bondservants may speak your word with all confidence. While you extend your hand to heal and signs and wonders to take place through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. Verse 31, and when they had prayed, the place where they had gathered together was shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak the word of God with boldness. No doubt, tough times. No doubt, the early church filled with, again, persecution. Persecution that you and I don't face today. Many of our brothers and sisters around the world do, and it might come to that. But there's an interesting thing that we see here, and just a question that I'd pose to you. When times get tough, where do you go? What do you gravitate to? What do you do when times get tough? We should all do as they did. Gather together. (laughs) Come together in one accord and praise God and pray. You got things going on in your life? Things difficult and hard for you? You got some challenges, some difficulties? What are you gravitating to? What are you doing about it? Is your life pretty much perfect right now? No issues, no problems at all? Well, there's people sitting really close by you that aren't in that same situation. Praise God for that, but there's others around you that would love you to be praying for them. As I mentioned, we're, we're in a pretty volatile time in our country, and it's up to us to influence the culture around us. We can't do that without a fresh outpouring of the Holy Spirit and the power of God in us. That can't, that can't happen. Did I mention there's a prayer meeting tonight? Did anybody anybody hear about that? Six o'clock tonight. I want to personally invite you. Come out, get out here at six o'clock tonight. Let's gather together, worship God. It's a great time of worship and prayer. We, We seek the Lord as they did. We come to him and, and acknowledge he's the creator. He's almighty God. He's the sovereign one. It's all in his hands. And guys, the beautiful part about that truth is that we're his kids. He wants to hear from us. He wants to hear our prayer and acknowledge that as we align our wills with his. Not bending his to ours, but aligning ours with his. He takes note. He understands. As he says to the churches in Revelation, he's speaking to them, I know your tribulation. I know the difficulty that you're facing. And in that, he's not saying, I know it because I see it. He says, I know it because I feel it. I know it because I'm right there with you. When he encountered Saul, who had been persecuting the church, what did he say? He said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Not why are you persecuting my people or my church. Why are you persecuting me? Jesus said, I know your tribulation. I know everything you're going through. He says, I know where you dwell. I know what's going on at home. I know what's going on at your work. I know what's going on physically. I understand it, he says. I feel it. I'm right there with you. He says, I know your deeds. I know what you're doing. I see your heart behind it and those things that you're doing to bring honor and glory to me. Jesus says, I see that and I'm taking note of it. I'm keeping a record of all of it. He desires to pour out his favor on us. He desires to answer our prayers if they're aligned with his will. If they are, as we talked a couple weeks ago, in his name. Notice their prayer. And this is an important piece to note. They do not say, Lord, we're being persecuted. Would you please have them stop? 
They don't even hint at that. They said, Lord, we're being persecuted. Give us boldness to stand up in the midst of the persecution. They're not asking that God change the direction or the, the contents of the path in front of them. They're saying, God, give me the feet and the power that I need to walk the road you've placed in front of us. That needs to be our prayer. God does, loves to answer that prayer. And again, knowing that we can't, nothing's going to change in our own power through this, notice what takes place. When they gather, when they pray together, when they worship God together, when they seek his will, align their prayers with his will, look what happens, verse 31. When they had prayed, the place where they had gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak the word of God with boldness. That's what happens. That's what happens. And I don't, I know I don't speak alone in this. I want tonight at six o'clock this place to be shaken. And I want the Holy Spirit to be poured out. And I want us to leave here and speak the word of God with boldness. Do you? Well, that, that he, he wants to answer that. He wants to honor that. He wants to use us. And I know we can so easily get lost in this. This problem's way too big for us, God. Yes, it is. <laughs> it's way too big for us. This world is a wreck. It's a mess. It's way too big for us. God loves to work in those kind of situations. And he loves to use you and me in it. And I don't know what he plans on doing, but I can tell you who does. He does. And he says, my eyes are looking to and fro, and I'm just looking for somebody who says, I'm on board. Use me as you see fit, Lord. I, I hope this is a comfort to you as we look at this, this situation here, especially at the very end of the section we looked at. I hope it comforts you in the current events, in the current time that we're in. Because God is sovereign. He's over all of this. And he understands everything that we're going through. And he gets everything. Nothing is catching him by surprise. He's not, by the way, he's not wondering what the outcome of the election is. He already knows. And he loves us. And he takes note of every detail. And he wants to pour out his blessing. He wants to pour out his spirit. There's one last verse to, as we close, Hebrews chapter 12. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, that includes Peter and John and the man who was healed, they're in that cloud of witnesses. Let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For we consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Lord, we thank you that when we come to you with our petition and our prayer. We're not speaking to a distant God. We're not speaking to a God who doesn't understand what we're going through. But Lord, we're speaking to our living God who loved us so much that you stepped out of heaven. You became one of us. You endured hostility by sinners against yourself taking on flesh and blood, dying, suffering and dying in our place. Lord, we look to you so that we do not grow weary and lose heart. Lord, we desire a fresh outpouring of your spirit. Lord, that we would all boldly proclaim your word, your truth, that we would stand boldly on the name of Jesus because there is salvation found in no other name. Lord, that's not very popular today, but it's the truth. Lord, give us courage in that. If you're here today and you've never surrendered your life to Jesus, you've never trusted in him 
for your salvation. Again, as we've talked today, there's salvation in no other name. There's no other way to have your sins forgiven. There's no other way to heaven other than through Jesus. He said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If Jesus isn't Lord of your life today, something or someone else is. And that problem is that they can't save you. All they will do is take from you and take from you and take from you. Today, you need to surrender your life to the one who gave it all for you. He paid the penalty for your sin in full, and you simply have two choices. You can reject it. You can walk away. You can harden your heart. You can even, you can even persecute the church. You can even come against, or you can surrender. You can simply respond to the Holy Spirit right now who is speaking to your heart, and you say, God, I am a sinner, and I realize that I am far from your will for me. I can't fix it. I can't do it myself. I need a Savior. And Jesus, I believe you died for me. I believe you paid the full penalty. I believe you rose from the dead. I believe you're alive today. And I ask you right now, would you come and would you take your rightful place on the throne of my heart? Take control of my life. Wash my sin away. Give me eternal life. Give me your spirit that I might follow you, that I might live for you from this moment on. Lord, we all thank you for that work that you've done in us. Lord, again, we desire to be filled with your spirit so that we're always ready to give an answer for the hope that is, that is in us. Lord, give us that cheerful courage. Lord, that the world would recognize that we've been with you. That our lives would so display the miracle in us, Lord, that it would be apparent to everyone. Jesus name. Amen. Would you stand? We're going to spend some time with Jesus right now. Spend some time worshiping him.